I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Cheryl Nothi. She's coming to us from Missoula, Montana. She's author of four collections of poetry and a textbook about writing poetry. She's the founder and artistic director of the Missoula Writing Collaborative, which is a Writers in the Schools program, which is going great guns. And she's also been the Montana Poet Laureate 2011 to 2013. Part of her experience as Poet Laureate, since she's not fond of driving, she took the Greyhound. Now Montana is a big place, so that means a lot of time on the Greyhound. But that resulted in a book called Grey Dog, Big Sky, about those experiences. And that book won the High Plains Award for Poetry. So as you can see, we have a very interesting guest today. Cheryl, I'm so glad you're here and we can do this. I am delighted. This is like the most exciting thing that's happened to me in three months, I think. Wow. <laughs> no, I've, been, I've been quarantining in the garden, in the yard. I've ruined my hands and fingernails and knees, but it's grounding yeah. and I need to dig and I need to plant and I need to grow things. So I don't go out. I just write poems and grow raspberries and strawberries and tomatoes and basil and cilantro and whatever else I can get a hold of. At least we have one advantage on over non-poets, I suppose. We do have material that can rather readily amuse us when we're by ourselves, <laughs> off of our bookshelves and our pen and paper. You know? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's and right. if you have a good companion to spend the time with, it's like I told Bob yesterday, it's like we're on summer vacation, permanent summer vacation. Yeah. But I miss the kids. I miss those third and fourth graders. I'm just, I see a kid that age walk by and I go, hi. You want to uh, talk about like your dreams? <laughs> <laughs> so you've been writing poems. Um, have, the, have the poems taken a particular direction lately, or they Science? come out like usual? You know what I mean? Well, I, I have a new manuscript started called Plague Year 2020. But I, I write about um, politics and science and children and the stars and probably a little more. Mm. Well, you have a pretty good view of the stars out there. Yeah. Pretty, pretty dark. Yeah. Pretty good dark skies. You'd like to go outside in August and sit in the yard and then go, oh, look, there's a shooting star. And then the other one goes, where? And you go, oh, you missed it. Missed it. <laughs> it's a it's like watching, watching fish jump. Yeah. Yeah. Or whales. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't you read us a poem and let's... All right. This one is called Her Broken Hands. My friend of many years next to me on the couch cries, cradling her hands in her lap over the broken bones in her fingers and her wrists. Defensive wounds on a child. No doctor was ever called. When she complained about the beatings and her throbbing bones, her mother told her, nobody wants to hear about what they did when they were drunk. Nobody wants to hear it. Whoa. Nobody wants to hear about what they did when they were drunk. <gasps> it's so frightening. Yeah, and true. Yeah. Whoa. 
Well, yeah, you have, uh, you, you, while we were talking before we turned on the recording, uh, you uh, have a worldly experience, let's say. You know, you were talking about meeting your husband in a biker bar and things like that. Um, do, do you have a lot of poems out of that? Or do you just have poems out of everything you do, really, everything I imagine? Happens. You know, I think, yeah, Flannery O'Connor said, uh, writing is a habit of being. And that's my habit of being. I started writing when I was 11 years old and I never stopped because there was nowhere else to put my life but in these words. It, it, it was the worst you can imagine. Hmm. Every kind of abuse. Uh, yeah. You, you, live, you live in uh, a number of different I would say kinds of places also. Born in Minnesota, but then you said you're, in, I think, in a farm country in the South. Yeah. Then city, which I assumed you meant also in the South, but then to New York City. Minneapolis. Okay. Then after I published my first book, I went to New York because somebody said, in New York, if you got the goods, you can deliver them. And then I started working for Teachers and Writers Collaborative, and that's how I learned about using love and connect connectivity to get children to trust you so they'll trust their imaginations at your encouragement. And you're doing that out there with this program. You said you, yes. you started 25 years ago. Yeah. And with only a few schools. Five schools. Five schools. And now you have. About uh, 29 schools. And then we also worked in Hawaii and um, Alaska. And because we'll send our writers out to places. And um, the people in Hawaii asked me to come to show them how to do their program. So we, we move around. Okay, listen up, folks. You might need a poet from Montana to come out and help you get something going. True, true. Never know who's listening. And I know how to do it. Before we came on with recording, you also uh, told me about a poem from a child that was just very okay. interesting. Why don't you tell people about that? And uh... All right, this was a fourth grade Native American girl who the teacher told me she doesn't write. And so I sat down with her whenever she was in class and I said, just like me, I see who you are. You're really smart, but you're afraid if you let it on, you'll have to always be really smart. And I said, but I, I was just like that. I see who you are. So here's the poem she wrote. <clears throat> we have a, a lesson called, I would go inside. It's from, um, I would go inside a tiger by, I'll forget, I'll remember his name later. Eastern European poet, Charles Simic. <laughs> I would go inside my dog. I would go into her blue eyes, jumping the fence to go to the horse across the street and barking really, really loud with an echo. I would catch the ball and run around the yard and kill a chicken. Whoa. It's kind of like a William Carlos Williams. And it's... And that straightforward... Simple, yeah. Yeah, simplicity. Seeming simplicity. What's interesting is that, what was that detail? Where she qualifies something... Bark really, really loud with an echo? With an echo, yeah. <laughs> that 
that to me that really stands out like what a thing to think of and then the last line like yeah. every poem the last line just is like Whoop! and yeah. kill a pigeon <laughs> very dog like man that's a really good poem well kids watch animals you know they pay really careful attention to them so i like i used i, I like to have them write about animals but when I'm doing homestays in Idaho, other far rural places, the stories about animals break my heart. So I only do it in the city mostly. And you, and you also mentioned you have a, a rather vigorous garden going on these days. Yeah. Since you have coronavirus time. <laughs> yeah. I'm planting milkweed for the monarchs and I got a baby monarch. Oh, little tiny, tiny. And I think it's my mother. When she died the next morning, I went outside and two monarchs were over my head, around me like that. And so I said, hi, mom. And now I call every butterfly mom and, and I've started a monarch garden. And I got one already. Hey, pretty good. And I'm growing food. I think the best thing people can do during this pestilence is to teach their children to grow food. My friend says, well, no, he, he won't get off of his uh, screen and grow food. I can tell you how to handle that. Well, let's hear another poem. Okay. Um, I told you that I, I adore quantum physics and I study it. When my father passed, uh, I'd already been studying quantum physics, but then after he passed, I signed up for a Hindu class on the computer and it eased me through his death like butter. It was wonderful. And the Hindus include every god we've got. They say Christ studied with Buddha in Africa. They say that Krishna is Buddha's brother. Every god you have, they go, oh yeah, we got him too. He's, and they're all related. And they have a hundred religious holidays a week. And it's all color. But I'm so disappointed with India right now. It's not the Hinduism, the beauty of the Hinduism I love. Okay, so here's the poem. Okay. It's called Waiting. Despite the sorrow and the hatred, I was led to beautiful strangers. Wait most of your life for a person, then separate without hope. Nevertheless, you find yourself waiting. The planet yearns to find its one true love, tiger, great ape, elephant, child of ash. Earth is a globe of water and meaning never freezes. Whatever we use to describe it is only equal to our tools of measure, does not choose its form until we come looking for it. Unaware, we make constant interpretations with no vantage point in reality. It depends what instruments we use relative to our expectations. Replace the word is with seems. It's all a huge coincidence. Subatomic smoke and mirrors. When the magician reaches into his hat, the rabbit complies or decides to be a dove if that's what is expected. Hmm. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking is if you're, are you, this is, might sound stupid or just irrelevant. Are you conscious? I'm thinking about, things like meditation and creativity and how that's related to waiting. 
in the sense that you know, you can't make a poem happen, but you want to somehow, but you want to, as a poet, you want to make a poem happen. And are you waiting when you try to make yourself available? Then again, can you, uh, can you try? It starts to get confusing. But uh, those are half thoughts I had. How does that grab you? <laughs> Well, sometimes I tell my students, when you're writing a poem, you have to take 10 steps into the forest. And that's where you begin to talk about the trees and the animals. But those 10 steps are your uncertainty, your self-doubt, your uh, low self-esteem, your hesitation at putting it out there. But by the time you get 10 steps in, you've pretty much found your tree and your fox. You forget what you went for and you just do it. Yes. Yeah. Well, I tell my students the important thing about a poem is that you should end up where you had no idea you'd end up. This might be, I don't know how hard they're easy this to answer, but do you have a main thing like this idea you just said that you would, you know, that you push in the textbook or that you really hope students yes. get from it? The textbook, Poetry Everywhere, um, has 65 lessons, and each lesson has 10 examples from kids of various ages. So when I went to Chalice, Idaho, to a one-room schoolhouse where the little boys had cowboy hats on in class, and I sat like this with two, said, I ain't writing no poetry. And then I'd read them poems from kids in Salmon, Idaho, their age, talking about how much they hated cattle and how stupid cows are, and how cows step on their feet. And the kid goes, that's poetry. I can do that. And they did. <laughs> <laughs> so the models really are a major teaching tool. Yeah. You're not going to hit them with, um, well, I do hit them with Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright. But before that, I give them things that they say, oh, I, oh yeah. I have an idea about that. And there's this point, they're holding their pencils and, and they say, I don't know it. I don't know it. I don't. And then I say, did you have a dream last night? Did your dog do it? And then their face changes and they go, oh, I got it. And it's my favorite time. Yeah. The aha moment. Lantern <laughs> goes on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, let's hear another poem. All right. This one is, um, my family is, black and white and Korean and God knows how much else we have. So this is instructions to the child. It's to my black nephew who's in Minneapolis. And I started, I wrote this one years ago. And then after what's going on now, he'll call me and he's weeping. And he says, I'm so afraid I'm going to die. Mm. And why do they hate me? He says, Sherry, I have your blood but I have a different mel melatonin. And for that, I could die. So anyway, this is called Instructions to the Child. After all those killings, we dialed our sons up to warn them. Vulnerable boys perceived as danger. So vulnerable, they are in danger. One particular night of the slayings, I called my nephew to remind him again to survive the lethal atmosphere of the homeland. Put both hands flat on the dashboard. Say, yes, sir, don't reach. Be calm. 
stay alive. Better yet, don't drive or even go outside for now. Best, just don't be not white, he said. Don't worry about me. He soldiered in deserts of burning oil, served a tour in that Cuban prison, designed computers for airplanes. He studies quantum physics. I have photographs of him in his navy whites, daring and proud. Now he stays in the small bedroom in my mother's house and keeps an eye on grandma, rides the bus to school, but none of that matters. Reduced to one single skin, one faceless face. You don't imagine yourself blindsided on the ground, choked. You never considered getting shot in the heart, on the street, beside your car, next to your children. You can't see yourself so blinded by fear, blood foam on the brain. It's the same on both sides, only the names are different. Trained like little soldiers to be men, bleeding out on the road. My baby, the women scream the child's name and they are restrained. Take what is irreplaceable, what you love most. Take the best of you. Give it to the hyenas. Give it to the wolves. You too could be shrieking the name of your child in the street. And the sad thing is I wrote this years ago. Wow. Yeah, it's like yesterday. Or, yeah. or this morning, really. Yeah, my nephew said, now I understand why you kept calling me and telling me that. And he said, you know what? If the police pull me over, I'm going to call for a second squad car. Oh, there's one called unexpected losses. The likelihood of a marriage withstanding the loss of a child when no one could say her name, no one could play near the pond, forced shoved forward into the new dead air, baffled by a wrong future, a design lacking in air and blood. Some years on, the parents were able to escape the nightmare by becoming invisible. What was left of them but cut stems, pale and paler? Wasn't there another child who did not drown? None of the ants know what happened and then they were gone. When losing the mother, none of us knew that she was our star. She slipped below the horizon and my brothers and I lost our grip, slipped out of orbit and drowned in the last wake. Very briefly, it was breathtaking. Sometimes I remember something less and less. Do you think we're making, we're going to make any progress here yeah. in the good old United States of America based yeah. on things that are going on? It's happening. We're getting rid of Trump. It's happening. He can't send out enough people, troopers, warriors, to the population that is waiting for change, making change. This is, you know, every epidemic completely changes the society it happens in. The Black Plague ended feudalism. All the serfs died and people began working for hire. And so we're, we're gonna make it through it, but it's gonna have huge costs. We're at the very beginning. 
I, I don't think about if I'm going to work again, if I'm going to do anything until late August. By then, things will have changed so rapidly. We may have a clearer idea. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking we're going to be we're going to be indoors till next year. You know, James I, mean, I, I think I, I don't think the schools are going to really open. Maybe I they will, but no. No, they're going to kill all those teachers. Yeah, I wouldn't send my kid. Mm -mm. <laughs> go, go to school and die. <laughs> no. During, during the Spanish flu, classes were taught outside. So in the summertime, they're at their desks, uh, lined up uh, hmm. away from each other outside. And then in the winter, they had these little thermal units, these like snow suits, that, but they were really reinforced and they kept warm. Wow. Yeah. Well, we're, we're, we have, we're not preparing for that kind of thing, you know. Well, we or, will. I hope they come up with something and and uh we had done homeschooling and so i just lately tuned into a facebook page for homeschoolers in vermont and so many unfortunately so many people are so anxious about trying to do homeschooling you know i, I think they want to try to match a school and do the workbooks and all that stuff and it's they just relax and learn things you know and somebody needs to help them out you know somehow teach them what you know Teach them how to grow food. Teach them like what your job is. Teach them language. I mean, they learn experientially. They don't learn how to work books. Yeah. So this could be a time to train them in the ways of the 3D real world. Yeah. Well, that's what you get when you're homeschooled. Instead of spending a day in a classroom with other children, you're out in the world, like going to the library or doing whatever you're doing. And thirty-four kids in a classroom. Yeah, I have to like walk sideways between desks. Mm. That's insane because they don't give the schools any money. Yeah, it's misguided. But let's hear a poem. Oh right, we, we just about have time to for another one. I think. Okay. Yeah. This one is called "The Imagined Life." One, no explosions or gunfire, a quiet peace. The sound of the knot in a silk scarf loosening. Empty drawer with hidden images of soft things. Space traversed by the simple impetus of words, by the atoms of language, as though the imagination created a nerve fiber, something like jute, natural, durable, impermeable, strong enough to build a scent, a tent, slick as shark skin. It does not age or weaken. It does not obey natural law. No nuclear force can contain it. So silent this morning, I can hear the cat lapping water. There is no end to the liberties nature takes with our minds. Mm. Do you have any final words you'd like to pass on to our listeners? Yeah, I think I'd like to quote Mark Twain. The imagination already knows every story. Ooh, I haven't heard that one. That's cool. So my third graders went, no, no, no. I went, okay, you're going in the basement. It's dark. Lights are out. You're alone. You hear a sound. What does it look like? They go like, ooh. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess you do. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, this has been really great. 
Folks, you are listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm your host, Charlie Rossiter. Our guest, Cheryl Nothi, coming to us from the heart of Montana with her poetry. Bye-bye. Be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. And now we have something just a little different. It's not every day that we have a political figure on Poetry Spoken Here, but Raz J. Baraka, mayor of Newark, New Jersey, since the pandemic, has been reading poetry on Facebook Live as a way to provide spiritual support for the people of Newark, New Jersey. We have a statement by him talking about the power of poetry, thanks to our good friend Bob Greenberg and his Brainwaves video anthology, which you can see on YouTube. And by the way, Raz is the son of Amiri Baraka, poet and playwright. You know, this pandemic in the city has been, well, all over the country has been ravaging, uh, you know, our communities, particularly communities of color, uh, you know, really unearthing deep inequities that exist in our system. A lot of uh, depression, uh, folks uh, don't know, uh, you know, what they're going to do to pay rent, to bring food in the home. So besides all the things that we have to do, uh, like uh, give people opportunities for grants for rent, small businesses, uh, help people out with food. We've delivered almost 2 million meals in the city. There's some specific things that, you know, that are not tangible that you can't do by delivering people uh, material goods that, you, you know, we, we also have to feed their spirit and their mind. And I think poetry uh, is the way to do that. Uh, I always say on my Facebook, when people ask me, why do I do that? Or why do I shout people out? Or why do I uh, read poetry? Because people don't have to be taught to be happy during happy times, right? So it's only when times are, are, are difficult that you have to uh, teach people to get through that, to, to, to understand what is going on and look at a bigger picture to uh, embrace family and community to, uh, you know, look at th- things uh, uh, that are beautiful, that that will give them hope and inspiration. I think does that more than anything. It has the opportunity to take so many different emotions uh, and get them looking forward to actually the next Facebook Live. So people come on, people actually have sent me poetry so I can read it. Personal poems, individual poems, poems they love alike. Uh, you know, they, they send it to me, read this, that they create. So it is actually, uh, you know, helping us foster a community-minded spirit, uh, a creative community-minded spirit where people are saying, this is our city, we're going to get through this, but we have to get through it together, uh, and we're going to endure this thing to the end. And I think that's the power of poetry, and poetry does that. It keeps us alive. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. <laughs>
If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.